This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to Indian Religions. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Jyotirmaya Sharma. He is a professor of political science at the University of Hyderabad. Uh, we are speaking about a fascinating, fascinating new 2021 Westland Publications book um, called Elusive Nonviolence, the Making and Unmaking of Gandhi's Religion of Ahimsa. Um, Dr. Sharma, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. So I think a good place to start maybe is tell us a little bit of the backstory. How did you get intrigued by this concept, this movement? How did you start studying this for the book? Well, I think it's uh, it's part of... Uh... A quartet of books I wrote on Hindu identity uh, for the last 16, 17 years. And this is the last of that series. So in a certain sense, there is an invisible thread running through all the volumes, uh, which is about self-images of one kind or the other um, and how they come about. Uh, so while... You know, I mean, it's 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 not always uh, wise to uh, evaluate an entire tradition of the civilization by what's happening in the contemporary world. But if uh, even frivolously the contemporary world were our point of reference, um, then nonviolence does seem to be elusive, um, uh, both. Uh, in practice and in 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 theory, uh, whereas the claims that are made uh, are that oh we are essentially a peaceful people, and we don't retaliate till provoked, uh, and this has this has been a theme from the 19th century onwards uh, within uh, the restatement that one sees of what we know today as the entity called Hinduism. Um, and and in that sense, uh, the trigger for being interested in this was uh, that. Also that people who oppose a certain kind of politics in India today um, uh, assume that Gandhi has all the answers, all the solutions, that uh, nonviolence really, uh, nonviolent dissent of one kind or the other will... Uh, will uh, be the antidote to a kind of aggressive politics that one increasingly sees. And I think I think um, there is also the Gandhi myth, the, the persona of Gandhi, larger than life, uh, deified uh, by many. Um, whereas I think I think in the realm of ideas, uh, he's as as suggestive but as vulnerable as any thinker would be. So that's that's one part of the project. The second part of the project is a tertiary project. 
And the tertiary project is simply this, um, that there have been these rather silly debates for the last 30, 35 years. Uh, is there an Indian political thought? And, uh, uh, you know, if there is at least a modern Indian political thought. So when people say, yes, there is an Indian political thought, but what is Indian political thought? Shukraniti Sara, Kautilya's Arthashastra, this, that. We, we go into the hoary past. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that somebody like Gandhi, while he was he was in the political realm, he was he was he was in the national movement. People like him are thinkers. They are thinkers in any sense of the term. Ambedkar is a thinker. Uh, Tagore is a thinker. You know, these are all thinkers. Um, and so, not being confined to a debilitating notion of thought. Uh, uh, and and then saying, oh, Gandhi, the activist, Gandhi, the thinker, Gandhi, the writer of books, Gandhi this, Gandhi that. I think I want to take this whole enterprise of Indian thought and Gandhi within it very, very seriously. So uh, long-winded answer to your, your very cryptic question. Oh, it's always about the scenic route with my generative uh, questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there are so many points of entry into into how to proceed with what I want to dig into, but um, let, let's start here. Is your book about uh, uh, is your book historical project understanding what Gandhi meant by himsa? Is your book uh, shedding light on modern understandings of himsa? How would you characterize what the book is primarily about? It's about how Gandhi conceptualized Ahimsa. Gandhi's conceptualization of Ahimsa. So it's not a historical book in the sense of what somebody like Ram Guha would do or somebody else who writes on Gandhi would do. Uh, it's a piece of intellectual history if you really want the label, uh, but uh, an, uh, an intellectual history which focuses solely on the argument of constructing and understanding Gandhi's concept of Ahimsa. So it's 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 got it's very focused. It's very, you know, uh, it has a singular vision to understand that, um, and no more. What are the salient features of Gandhi's understanding of Ahimsa? It, it, for my, in my view, it begins with first a very very interesting acknowledgement, and that acknowledgement, that affirmation, is 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 unique to him. Uh, it's an acknowledgement uh, that uh, we were never nonviolent. So people who argue uh, and say, oh, but look at Buddha, you know, uh, look at the Mahavira. We had this great tradition of uh, himsa. Um, or or uh, dish out uh, little quotable quotes like ahimsa paramo dharma and so on and so forth. I think I, I think Gandhi's understanding of the tradition uh, is not scholarly, but it's astute. He recognizes that there are these these suggestions of ahimsa which don't go very far. He understands that Buddha did not reach radical nonviolence in any sense of the term, as the Orientalists have made us believe. Ahimsa is part of an entire package uh, for the bhikkhu. It's not even there for the layperson. 
So when you have, in, you know, the Buddhist dialogues, somebody going and saying, but this particular king is indulging in these kinds of horrendous tortures, and these are graphically described. All that the Buddha says at the end of it is, if he is a properly anointed king, so be it. And that happens in a certain sense. So in a certain way, the, the, the fate of Gandhi and the fate of Buddha, in my mind, are linked. Here is the Buddha whose, whose metaphysics is totally channeled towards Nirvana. Um, and uh, what contemporary readings of the Buddha have done is to disengage the ethics and the psychology from the metaphysics. And so you get a Buddha bar, you get, you know, the Buddhist meditation, Buddha diet, and so on and so forth. Uh, the Buddha can be uh, harnessed to anything uh, without understanding that what he wanted from everything that he said or did was the ultimate goal of Nirvana. Gandhi similarly wants, wants moksha. Moksha in the profound, radical sense of the term. And everything he does, including his activism, including his politics, in a, in a way is geared towards that goal, which he thinks is realizable in this life, or at least an intimation of it is real, realizable uh, in this life. If you see, if you've read the book, and I'm sure you have, there is a moment when Gandhi says, how does a, how does a man who's about to attain moksha know that he's about to attain moksha. I mean, what are the characteristic features of a moksha? And he says, well, that sense you will have only when you're about to die. Because there is no way in which you can prevent uh, violence as long as the body is there. And so Gandhi's fascinating preoccupation with death. I mean, he's no great stylist in any language. But uh, he gets lyrical when he talks about deaths. I mean, some of the most beautiful passages in Gandhi's works are about, about deaths. You know, uh, that sleep, eternal, etc., etc. So I think, I think, I think uh, one needs to say that he begins by this assertion that there is violence everywhere. And he says this can be rectified only if one were to introduce within Hinduism Ahimsa as not a feature, not just one among other things, as the central principle of Hinduism. And that alienates him from not merely, you know, the more radical elements within Indian politics and history, but even Sanatani Hindus who are not ready to go along as, you know, his debates with Malavia or Radha Rajpatrai, uh, are ample evidence of. So that's that's the point at which he begins. And then what he does is, uh, through a series of very, very interesting maneuvers, wants to insert this element of nonviolence within Hinduism as a central principle. The word central here is operative. So that's, that's how I'd like to respond. Why is your subtitle the making and unmaking of this principle? 
the, the making of it is the insertion of this principle within, within uh, what he understands as Hinduism. And as one of the chapters uh, 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 has dealt with in great detail, his own understanding of Hinduism. What does he include and what does he exclude? And that process of inclusion and exclusion is there whenever religion is restated. It's not something something spectacularly novel or, or only confined to Gandhi. The unmaking is that he himself knows that perhaps at the end of it, it won't work. And it won't work not because he hasn't been able to produce perfect human beings who will be who will be uh, devoted and 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 uh, committed to ahimsa uh, but that even the religious imagination in india sometimes can be extremely transactional and that's where i think his his being in the tradition which dismisses local faiths local and folk forms of religion uh, uh, popular forms of religion, rituals, that whole 19th century, 18th, 19th century enterprise of rationalizing religion, uh, uh, you know, making, making it scientific, rational. Even Gandhi, who has been portrayed in the last several years by various commentators as anti-science, anti-West, talks about it in terms of it being scientific. Now, you take anyone from the 19th century onwards, whether it's Vivekanand or Sri Aurobindo or anybody else, they all say it's it's the most perfectly scientific religion. And I think I think I think I think I think there is there is there is a beautiful irony in that. So I mean, look at the look at the look at his rejection of Gita Govindam. Gandhi's rejection. He is disgusted and repulsed by the text, and and he he can't he can't he can't abide by the 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 the, the shingara uh, that is so beautifully replete in in that text. And and I think I think it tells you something. So the unmaking, in a certain sense, is. It's the unmaking of ahimsa, but it's also the, the self-imposed limitations of a particular view of Hinduism. So, um, without putting words into your mouth, the, the perhaps untenability uh, of ahimsa in practice, would you say, is that due to its, its, its idealistic dimension, to its religious dimension, Oh, to what do you ascribe the, uh, the, the, the impracticality of this term? I think the impracticality of Gandhi's notion of Ahimsa is an idealism riding upon a certain conception of religion. That's the impracticality. And it's not, it's not, I mean, you know, people have done to Gandhi what they did to Marx. Early Gandhi, middle Gandhi, later Gandhi, Gandhi before, after. So there is a there is a singular Gandhi. He's so consistent. In 1908, 1909, uh, at the time of writing the Hindu Swaraj, he is 
putting in requirements for non-violent satyagraha and all those conditions for non-violent satyagraha are basically the yamas and niyamas prescribed for a sannyasi you will you will be celibate uh, you will believe in brahmacharya you will not have property you will not have attachments and you will be ready to die so i think i think in that sense the unmaking is the unmaking of a vision because it's a certain idealism which leads to inflexibility and doesn't allow human imperfection to have its play and and that in my mind is the beauty of say a text like the mahabharata not necessarily the bhagavad gita the celebration of human imperfection and and the 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 inability for human beings to resolve that so when 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 the mahabharata says teja dharmam adharmam chauhe satyan rite tejaha it's 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 not merely saying abandon these binaries it's also saying you know then forget that you have left them the thought that you have left them now i think i think i think that's important and uh, focus on the bhagavad gita uh, alone for him let him to a kind of got himself boxed in a particular imagination uh, where human imperfection then became a malady an illness so they unmake the the word idealism certainly resonates and um i will say that um obviously we read the works of others through our own experience and interest so one of the great fascinations of of the work i mean indeed i think it's objectively fascinating to think about uh, uh this 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 concept that is a cornerstone to gandhian thought and uh, uh, just a, a mainstay in in the the hindu imaginary um in political thought and social thought so that itself is fascinating but for for me one thing that really gripped me actually dragged me into grad school was this atten- this uh, tension between ascetics and kings we find in the epics and it seems to me that whenever i teach sort of cookie cutter intro hinduism we have you know the vedic laukika ethos and then you have the upanishadic the, 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 this ascetic strand these religious virtuosos that are entirely self directed towards moksha they're not really interested in, in 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 how do we all get along in the world they're like let's escape the world let's find find the truth and then um you preempted actually what i was uh, thinking myself that the, the beauties in the mahabharata the ramayana you know puranas where they bring them together i call it the dharmic double helix you have to bring them together and on the one hand one might say well gandhi is an expositor of this pristine you know he's the idealist he has to hold this vision for uh, india or humanity or hinduism or what have you and uh, the other perspective another perspective might be but what's the point of holding that as an ideal and holding people account accountable to an ideal that they couldn't hope to attain and most don't even want to attain. And so it, you know it really is a fascinating discussion for me. But enough about me yammering on about my opinion of your book. Let's hear more about your <laughs> let's hear more about your book. Um what are the implications? What are the implications of your um I want to say reworking or 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 the your interpretation of of Gandhi himself. Um who does this impact 
Well, I, I think, I think, I think um, it simply clarifies. Uh, I don't think, um, you know, I often say to my students that when I was just about 24, 25, a very wise man, extremely wise man, said to me, never write for the living. Now, of course, of course, you might say he was he was, in fact, quoting a Romanian philosopher, E.M. Curin, uh, uh, and said, never write for the living. Uh, now, of course, you, ca you can be cynical and say, but only the living buy your books. So why should they buy your books? Yeah. But what it means is, if you uh, if you think you're going to impact something or uh, the popular word these days is generate debate. Uh, uh, you know, uh, then what happens is you become self-conscious. You start looking over your shoulder or look at, oh, now, uh, what will Dr. Raj say when he reads this particular thing? I mean, have I dealt with it right or not, etc., etc. You become so utterly self-conscious. So I, I really think that if the book can bring about a certain degree of clarity and lucidity to a discussion which is very alive in our country for not the 20th century or the 21st century, but for a long time, uh, idealism versus, you know, uh, practical reason on the one hand, extremes of it, uh, um, you know, uh, Draupadi tells uh, Yudhishthira, uh, who's, a, who's our sort of proto-Gandhi in many ways, um, uh, when he goes on about uh, Krama in the Mahabharata, and she tells him, it's not always good to rise to anger, and it's not always good to forgive. So, I think, I think at the end of the day, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, uh, as an aside, if you allow me, um, I last year, year before last, translated a, a 13th, 14th century political satire from Sanskrit to English and wrote an introduction to it. And how did the man who compiled that political satire in the 13th, 14th century, uh, Vishweshwara Bhattacharya, did he know that in the 21st century, he would be impacting some small little professor sitting in Hyderabad University who would be completely mesmerized by the text uh, for a reason. You know, uh, given the tradition of political satires, this stands out in a certain way. So I, 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 think, I think lucidity, clarity. That's my long, short answer. The lucidity and the clarity that you provide, who does this impact? Or who would you say the book is for? Let's put it that way. Anyone who is self-critical, who thinks, uh, who has an open mind, and who revels in ideas. I mean, for long, I have not written for university presses uh, intentionally. I mean, I want my books to be sold at airports and railway stations. You, you'd like an audience of more than 12 colleagues. <laughs> 20 if you're lucky. <laughs> and, and, and a sale of 100 copies of which 30 you've bought yourself. If you can afford it. Well, that's a different question. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> if, if, Brill, if Brill is not publishing your uh, books, then yes. 
yes yes um i definitely uh relate to wanting to reach a broader audience hence the, the podcasting etc um how do i how do i phrase this this idealized um perspective on gandhi um what swaths of people or who would you say are most invested in that notion? I think across the ideological spectrum, people are invested in it. I mean, he's become a totemic symbol of a certain kind. You know, you, uh, you, you say, you know, uh, when you go on a strike, you say this is a satyagraha. Even if that strike is for working less and wanting uh, higher wages, you still call it in India Satyagraha. Everybody quotes Gandhi as far as nonviolence is concerned. Well, my book begins with that. I mean, Obama speaking in the Trevor Noah show quotes Gandhi. Everybody quotes Gandhi without without understanding that it the whole idea of nonviolence is a package as far as Gandhi is concerned. And just as for somebody like Malcolm X, that is this element of resistance, non-violent resistance, but there is an, an additional element, which is taking the whole question to an extreme and then withdrawing, then recanting. Now, is that element there in Gandhi? I don't know. Uh, I doubt whether that, that is so. But, but why is it not there? I mean, he talks about death so lyrically. Uh, but if you remember B.G. Kher asking him uh, in the book, uh, I cite B.G. Kher, the Bombay politician, asking him, but what is wrong with cowardice? It's also a human element. And, 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 and so if, if nonviolence is pitched at that level of human perfection or perfectibility, it then has fewer and fewer implications for what I call a liberal constitutional democratic order. There is nothing emotionally invested in it beyond one's own salvation. And Tagore was aware of what was going to happen to this. So in one of the letters that we have of Tagore writing to Gandhi, uh, he says, he says, uh, very few people will understand the spiritual import of what you are saying. And his exact phrase is, and hide behind mere verbal forms. Now, you see, people have done to death this business of, you know, the nonviolence of the courageous, the nonviolence of the coward, the nonviolence of the moral nonviolence, political nonviolence, and so on and so forth. But if it is to be employed in the public realm, people at that moment when nonviolence has to be practiced do not sit in a seminar or a podcast like this and say, okay, now, um, is this moral nonviolence or is this uh, nonviolence born out of covetous? Is this what kind of nonviolence? So in the end, it's just become a normative category. Shown off both the religious element that Gandhi infused in it and empty of any secular content except symbolism. So in that sense, the concept is what I'm interested in. Gandhi is just the peg. It's shown off, it, it, it loses on both ends. It's elusive. 
illusion. Um, <laughs> I love the word illusion. <laughs> clearly, clearly. Uh, your, your book, uh, it's not a misnomer. <laughs> this, is how you, this is how you view um, Gandhian nonviolence and nonviolence in general. Um, aside from, um, aside from uh, Indic traditions... Uh, what were other influences on Gandhi's um, construction or understanding of nonviolence? Well, there were other instances in terms of Tolstoy, very majorly, um, Ruskin, Thoreau. We, we, we know the, the cast of characters uh, Gandhi was influenced by. But I don't think uh, uh, in his formulation of nonviolence as he did so, um, there were elements he would have borrowed. This whole fascination with death and martyrdom comes from a certain medieval Christian uh, predilection to martyrdom, which he gets from Tolstoy, um, King, especially Kingdom of God is with you and uh, such texts. But uh, I think I think uh, it also comes from a lot of Vaishnava uh, traditions that he was familiar with. And it comes uh, centrally and hence an entire chapter is devoted to it from the Bhagavad Gita. His reading of the Bhagavad Gita. I would like to pan out a little bit um, from this book and talk about this, this, this perhaps elusive, but this, 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 this um, <laughs> strand, the stream across uh, the four of the, 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 the quartet that you've now completed. Right. What is the broader theme implication about Hinduism or Indianness, or you know, what is at stake on, on that greater level? You see, the, the first volume starts from a certain intuition, and as somebody has said, what is what is theory but intuition having gone impatient? So uh, it, it 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 was an intuition where. Uh, the the Hindutva uh, ideology was gaining traction. And the entire debate was, in a certain sense, between Hindutva and Hinduism. And there were people saying, oh, Hindutva is a perversion, a deviation, a departure from Hinduism, which is pure, unadulterated, uh, unsullied uh, by this ideology. And I thought it was a mistake. It was a mistake not because it is a conceptual mistake. I mean, for, for anybody who at least is uh, half an academic would know that conceptually uh, it's a mistake. But it's, a, it's also a mistake in terms of common sense. Uh, because, because, because uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of leaves out both the politics of Hindutva uh, uh, towards an uncharted territory, but it also sort of doesn't do very much to Hinduism. Um, there is nothing, again, going back to the Mahabharata, there is nothing which is absolutely pure or unsullied. Uh, all things human are a mixture of the pure and the tainted. Uh, and, and in that sense, my definition then of this whole enterprise uh, was to say Hindutva is the 
politically dominant face of Hinduism, though, and this is important, not the only face. That's been my formulation. And everything else then falls into place once you make that formulation. So the second volume is about the Valkars, uh, the practical manifestation of something that happens in the 19th century, uh, uh, a search for identity, a search for the nation, uh, a search for what to take from within the Indic tradition, what to take from the outside, how much of the West to take, how much of India to take, uh, would it fit into a nationalistic enterprise, and so on and so forth. The third volume, which is a volume on Swami Vivekananda, was to explore um, the foundational basis of this. How does it happen? Uh, how do we come about uh, constructing a disenchanted faith? So you borrow only the term from Weber, so I'm not a Weberian. <laughs> Somebody would say this is a Weberian analysis of whatever. No, just 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 the word uh, disenchanted faith. And so, uh, in that sense, the Vivekanand volume was geared towards that. And it comes to a close with the Gandhi thing, uh, uh, the central element, which, in a certain sense. Um, people say is not in Hindutva, but is part of Hinduism, which is non-violence. That what characterizes Hindutva is its violent character, and what characterizes Hinduism is, is its peaceability, its peacefulness. And my submission is that all these categories are not absolute categories, and they have to be looked at in a continuum of ideas, uh, historically as well as conceptually. So this is, this is the project. And it seems to me that, uh, of course, the contextualization and nuancing is, um, is crucial for, for understanding uh, lived tradition, understanding the world, history, politics, society. But it seems to me especially the case in so syncretic a tradition as Hinduism, whatever Hinduism means, this patchwork quilt, this tapestry, that uh, anything you can say about Hinduism, the opposite can be said. And so that this contextualization is crucial and, and uh, it's probably wise to avoid binaries such as this is where we find violence and this is where we find nonviolence. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So now that you've completed the quartet, um, <laughs> what, uh, what might you be working on next? Oh, I'll, I'll be resting <laughs> if I didn't have to teach as much. No, I, I mean, I'm being frivolous. Uh, so I think I'll take a, a short break from uh, uh, what is broadly called intellectual history uh, of the social science kind and do a biography of a musician. My, my, great, my first great passion is in studying classical music. Uh, so, uh, a biography of Ustad Amir Khan, uh, fascinating character, uh, you know, comes from a family of musicians, the name would suggest uh, him being a Muslim, uh, and then gets fascinated by the Pushti mark and writes compositions uh, which has Krishna at the center of it. Without, without 
the the silliness that permeates all our discourse today uh you know uh, the self consciousness of the secular discourse as well as the self consciousness of the religious cultural discourse for him it was effortless the movement in and out of traditions was completely effortless and why was it effortless because the music was privileged not the ideology so when he sings lagila manava mohe sang saavari surat mohani murat etc etc um uh, you know uh, uh, he could also at the same time uh, you know sing karim naam tero famous composition in mehavalhar uh and for him this was not a divided fragmented world it was not also sort of you know performative secularism uh there was an effortlessness in it and i want to look at this fascinating man so the next would be a biography of ustad amir khan and then probably some more translations so perhaps you'll not be resting after all <laughs> oh so there's no rest for the wicked <laughs> yeah i see well then i'm in really big trouble <laughs> all right well was there anything else about the book you hoped we touch on No I think I think I think I'm just very grateful to whoever has read it or will read it and uh, and think of it as as just ideas uh, you know nothing to do with personalities I think it's high time that in India we get out of this fascination for personalities uh, it's it's a completely you know debilitating and uh, fruitless enterprise I we 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 reveled in ideas at one point of time ideas was our thing um uh, even in the 19th century even these people who were uh, recharting the course of our history were still men and women of ideas um and so i think i think i think uh, i i'd be grateful if if they see it as simply an exercise as i said earlier clarifying and uh, and in ideas yeah excellent well thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today thank you so much many thanks most grateful for those of you listening we've been speaking with dr jyotimaya sharma who's a professor at the department of political science at the university of hyderabad uh, of course we have been speaking with him about his fascinating brand new uh, 2021 westland books um, publication elusive nonviolence the making and unmaking of gandhi's religion of ahimsa until next time stay safe stay sane keep well keep listening and keep contemplating this thing called ahimsa take care